Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks For no one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Does God want you to be a good person? We might think, well, God is good and he commands me to do good, so yes. But I'd suggest living to be a good person sets the bar way too low. After all, what does it mean to be a good person in American culture? What did it mean to be a good German in the Third Reich or a good communist under Stalin? Stalin once said to Winston Churchill, by the way, the devil's on my side. He's a good communist. He's not wrong. Research shows that 75% of Americans consider themselves to be fundamentally good. And I like this. This is the best. 46% of Americans believe they are better than everyone they know. (laughs) I wonder how that works when those people get together. I'm sure they just spend hour after hour arguing over who's going to pick up the check for dinner. You know how that happens when you go to dinner with a friend and no one can decide who's going to pay for the check because you both so equally want to be so good to cover it. No, that doesn't happen. As Paul continues to explain the deep yet practical aspects of Christianity, we learn that the goal is not for us to be good but to be godly. Tonight's verses, they are a list of things that we should do and things we shouldn't do from one perspective, but it's not about checking boxes. The apostle is in this section where he is dissecting and revealing what it means to put on Christ, to be Christ-like, what it means to walk worthy with him, what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't just mean I believe that God exists. Being a Christian doesn't just mean I even believe that Jesus exists or that Jesus died on a cross. Even the demons believe and they tremble, the Bible says. Being a Christian means that you are born again, that you are in Christ, that you are walking with God, that you are putting on Christ. Those are the terms, that's the term that Paul's been using in this book. And he begins our section tonight with the bottom line up front. We are to imitate God in our conduct, attitudes, and words. So verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So Paul says, therefore, throughout the letter, we've been learning what it means to be saved, the ramifications of salvation, what power and resources are available to us, what our place is in the body of Christ and in God's unfolding cosmic work. And so now, therefore, it's time to go do what we've learned. And and as we've been talking about recently, first half of the book, chapters one through three, are an explanation of salvation as it's just unfolded to us and, um, and all that it includes. And then chapters four through six are the, so now let's go and live in the power of that salvation. Now let's do what we've been called to do. Have you heard of method acting? It's when pretentious actors stay in character for the whole duration of a film's production. Uh, I don't think I would like that, but uh, 
if the person across from me is like the villain in the movie and he decides he needs to stay in character. But a lot of, a lot of the, the big name actors do this. Steven Spielberg talked about working with Daniel Day-Lewis on their film Lincoln. Daniel Day-Lewis is, is a notorious method actor. Spielberg said, Daniel had so had Lincoln embedded in his psyche and his soul that I would come to work in, in the morning and Lincoln would be sitting behind his desk. So the, the term that Paul uses here for imitate, it's a word that means to mimic, and it refers to an actor taking on a role. And we're told that this verb is always used in the continuous tense, suggesting a constant habit or practice. Imitating God means reflecting his character to the world around us. It means to think like he thinks, to react like he does, to value what he values, to treat others the way he treats them. Christians are to imitate God to such a degree that other people then can then look at our lives, imitate our lives, and that will help them to follow after the Lord, right? Because Paul told the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, he said, imitate me the way I imitate Christ. And he wasn't, you know, it's not because Paul had a big ego. He wasn't on a power trip. He wasn't saying, I'm better than the rest of you people. Uh, he said, I'm the chief of sinners, but, but he understood his place in, in the Lord's program, and he understood uh, walking with the Lord. He's the one that the Lord is using to tell us about walking worthy with him. And he says, listen, you can imitate me the way that I imitate Christ. And it's not just, I mean, he was an apostle, and that's, he's obviously had a, a specific and a set-apart calling that the rest of us don't have, but Hebrews also tells us that as we walk with the Lord, this is in Hebrews 13, it says, as we walk with the Lord, as we seek to practice our Christianity and to live out our faith, we should identify godly Christian leaders and evaluate their life outcomes and, and see if they demonstrate faithfulness and spiritual fruit and spiritual vibrance, and then we should imitate them. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Now, this is important. We don't just evaluate whether a Christian leader is popular or uh, numerically successful or hip in some way or not. It says, hey, evaluate their outcomes. Evaluate what the product of their faith is. Is it bearing the spiritual fruit that we can identify from the New Testament and if so, imitate them, it says. We are to practice Christianity, to put on Christ like a method actor, not being phony or, or pretentious, but allowing Christ to become effectively like our personality, for him to redefine the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we move in this world, that we take on his characteristics. And this is possible because we share in the divine nature. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, part of the promise of God is that you and I as Christians get to share in the divine nature. So we have this robe of righteousness. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the examples of faithful people around us and the examples of Scripture. We have the full revelation of who God is, what he said, what he's done. We have the, a portion of the divine nature, right, that the Lord has shared with us that we get to to uh, live in, and he says, and now go and imitate God in your day-to-day -day lives. And this imitation isn't just an obligatory, obligatory should. Well, I should do this because it's the right thing to do. 
Paul gets down and, and explains this on a deeper level. He, he says, listen, no, that you don't understand. This is who you've been made to be. Remember all the way back at the beginning of the book where it talks about how before uh, the earth began, before time began, the Lord knew you and carved out a life for you and had all these intentions and promises for you and that, and that he planned to give you this inheritance and hope that you would walk with him and all of these different things. And he says, this is who you're made to be. He says, you're not just somebody who should fall in line because that's the right thing to do. What does he identify us as here? He says, we're children of God. And just as you grew up in a family, maybe you didn't have the best family, maybe you had um, a lot of hurt or hardship in your family, but even if that's the case, you know from experience negatively what a good family would look like, right? But so you grew up in a family sharing genetics and heritage and traditions and ways of thinking. And, And so to a much more profound degree, Paul says, okay, and now as a Christian, you're a child of God. And remember, he's used in the in previous passages, he's used the analogy of a household. He's used an analogy of a family. He says, you're a child of God and you're a child in God's house. And the natural progression of your spiritual life is that you're going to mature into spiritual adulthood where you are formed and fashioned according to God's will and God's truths and you grow more and more Christ-like in the likeness of God. And notice, you're not just a child. You're a loved child, a dearly loved child. It's the same description God the Father used of Jesus Christ, the same words at his baptism. What did the Father say? He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And now, out of his grace and love, the Lord says, you're my beloved son or daughter, and I'm pleased with you as well as you walk with me and as you don't grieve the Holy Spirit and as you just cooperate in the work that he has planned for you from before the foundation of the earth. Now, a child needs protection and provision and guidance and correction, all sorts of things, and the Lord wants to provide those things to us. He doesn't just make us latchkey kids, right? He's like, no, I'm here to do all of those things for you and more. And also, a child is always growing and developing, right? And so, so we don't want to stay spiritual babies, and Paul will, will talk about that in other letters. He's like, hey, stop being babies, you know, you should, be, you should be more advanced than you are right now, he tells one audience. And so we don't want to stay spiritual babies. We grow into spiritual adulthood, and we've seen that in previous texts. And we, but at the same time, we're still children of God. We have not uh, been completely transformed. We haven't been finished that work. We haven't hit total perfect adulthood. That's not going to happen until we're in glory in heaven. And so we still need the guidance and the provision and all the rest from the Lord. But along the way, we should expect to grow and progress as we develop in our walk. Verse 2, a walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So the book of Ephesians gives us a lot of practical items and ways for living out the Christian life. And that's the section we're in now, how we talk with people, how we relate with people, what do we do at work, what do we do at home, what do we do in the church, all of these very practical um, sort of rubber meets the road things. But the fundamental way that we imitate God is simply by mimicking his agape love. And we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that without the agape love part, without without that being the base fundamental thing from which we're building our imitation of God, without love, all the rest is a waste. 
resounding gong, clanging cymbal, don't even bother. It has to be built from the fundamental, from the core of the agape love of God. And, and Paul here highlights the selfless, willing, generous aspect of Christ's love for us in this verse. You see, the Father didn't make the Son lay down his life. Even though Jesus said, hey, not my will, but your will be done, and if there's, let this cut pass for me. But at the end of the day, when it was time to be crucified, Jesus wasn't forced to do it against his will. He chose willingly to die for you and for me. He chose to lay down his life. That's how great his love is. That's what agape is all about. And that's the kind of love we're to practice, right? Because there is no greater love than when a person lays down their life on behalf of others. Of course, that can mean actually dying for someone, taking a bullet for someone, being a martyr, right? But remember, we're also called to take up our cross every day and live out that kind of, of, of self-denying, sacrificial love every single day, right? We're called to love like living sacrifices, Romans 12. That every day we say, I'm a living sacrifice today, and then tomorrow I'm a living sacrifice too, and the day after that I'm a living sacrifice. That I emulate and mimic the love of Jesus Christ who came and laid down his life for others because of his love. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so, to love is to give, and loving in this way, we're told, is a fragrant offering to God. The Bible loves to use this image of a sweet-smelling aroma coming out and through our lives uh, to the world around us and to the Lord himself, a fragrant offering uh, from us. Now, if Ephesus, the city, was a pagan place, uh, we've talked a little bit in previous studies about the mystery cults that thrived in the Roman Empire, and, and that some of the Christians in this church may have been a part of previously or even a part of currently. The mystery religions, they were super secretive, so we don't always know a lot about what they did or their specific teachings, but historians do know some things. And from what we know, it looks like Paul, especially in this section, this is the famous section where, you know, in a couple weeks or a week or so, we'll get to the part where he talks about not being drunk with wine. And, and we're in this whole section where he's, he's, he's showing a difference between Christianity and, and the Gentile way, the old way, ever since, you know, last chapter where he talks about taking off the old self and putting on Christ and no longer walk the way of the Gentiles. And he's drawing these, these, these contrasts between two ways of life. And so it looks a lot like he was drawing a specific contrast between Christianity and following Christ and some of these mystery cults. Some of the commands he gives in this section would contradict the normal, regular practices of an Ephesian. The things that they did just as a good Ephesian. We talk about, should I be good? What did it mean to be a good Ephesian? It meant you were into some weird stuff because that's what their culture was defined by. And you know what? You know, it's easy for us to feel high and mighty, but what does it mean to be a good American? You know, America's getting into some pretty weird stuff, depending on where you live and, and what the sort of ruling culture in your area is. And it, like I said, it's possible that people within the church were actually still practicing some of these things. 
And so Paul wants to set them straight. He wants to set us straight and explain very clearly that Christianity must be distinct. It must be set apart. It must be countercultural. It can't be blended with paganism or humanism or earthlyism in any way. It just can't. They're different, they're different ways that go different places. One's headed this way, one's headed that way. They never the twain shall meet, right? The city of Ephesus was filled with the worship of Diana. That's very uh, apparent from when you read the book of Acts. But it was also filled with the worship of these mystery cults, specifically of the mystery cult of Dionysus. The other name for this god is Bacchus. And the festivals in his honor were known as the Bacchanalia. Maybe you've heard this term before. In mythology, Dionysus was the son of a god whose mother was mortal, and he came in human form and dwelled among the mortals, and then he was killed and raised to life, and now wine was a symbol of his blood. So now you're Paul, and you come into the city of Ephesus, and you say, I'd like to preach the gospel to you, and I'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, oh yeah, we already have that guy. We already know him. No, you don't know him. This is a completely different thing. Well, you know, you know, dad is a god, mother's a human, died, rose again. Yeah, we already have that guy. And so Paul has to explain to these people, you know, these are completely separate things. And the ways of life and the ways of worship are completely separate. Newcomers to the cult of Dionysus would go through a ritual. And the purpose was to liberate themselves from their worldly constraints. And the rituals included lots of, all kinds of weird stuff, but things like like lots of intoxication, scourging yourself with whips, all this weird music and chanting, and then bringing offerings. Participants would spread musk from the glandular secretions of animals that they had caught and killed around the ritual area as a fragrant aromatic offering to Dionysus. Stinky. Sorry. Uh, maybe you hunters are like, are nothing better than a smell. <laughs> He said the deer musk was stinky, but so Ephesian Christians, so now what's Paul doing? He's talking about aroma. He's talking about worship. He's talking about how to connect with God, how to be like God. Ephesian Christians needed clarity on the difference between the one true faith in the one true God and these other religions and cultures and philosophies they'd been steeped in all their lives. In the case of verse 2, Christ's loving self-sacrifice is the fragrant aroma and one that we can emulate as we love others. In another letter, Paul talks about just the generosity of this other church was like a fragrant aroma to the Lord and and to Paul, who is a recipient of their generosity. Verse 3 highlights more differences. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Debauched sexual excess was part of these religious activities when you were in the cult of Dionysus. Uh, to be godlike, you had to do all this weird stuff, right? Because he was a weird god who did weird stuff. It was normalized, it was expected, it was what you did if you were a good Ephesian who worshiped Dionysus. Oh, you're in the cult of Dionysus? Yeah, this, that's what you do. That's the thing, that's part of it. It's like tailgating, right? <laughs> like this is, this is what you do. You go do this super weird, perverse, debauched thing over here and everybody thought that's just normal. But you know, it wasn't just religious people that had this problem. Ephesus was a sinful city like every city, ancient or modern. The library of Ephesus is a famous site. You can still visit today. The ruins are there. Nearby, archaeologists have discovered what may be the world's oldest advertisement anywhere. And it is for 
the brothel across the street from the library. One interpretation of the sign reads in part, up at the crossroads on the left, you'll find women whose love can be purchased. But obviously this wasn't love. And so Paul's talking to them about what love really is. And these people, the world who doesn't know Jesus, don't know what love really is. Because for an unbelieving world, love is self-oriented, is selfish, is about sensual pleasures maybe, and maybe starts to dip its toe into you know, being a little bit kind to others. But, but God's love is completely different. And he says, listen, the love that the Gentile world is, is going after has no place in the life of a Christian. The term Paul uses here for sexual immorality is a general one. It covers all sexual sins that are outside of, of God's allowed boundaries. Adultery, homosexuality, sex outside marriage, pornography, all other sexual behaviors that are outside of the biblical boundaries that have been lovingly given by God. That's what he's referring to. These are the boundaries God has given when it comes to human sexuality. Sexual activity may only take place within a marriage between one biological man and one biological woman in a loving and consensual manner. Anything outside of that boundary is sin and is detrimental to your life and to your partner's life and to society at large. That's just the deal. And the human, uh, the human heart doesn't like to hear that from as long as there has been humans on the earth, there has been in particular sexual sin, just like every other sin. But those are the boundaries, those are the guidelines God has given, not because uh, he doesn't know better, because he does know better. And because he has given this thing for our good and this is the only way that it is good. And Paul says that these sexual practices, these sins, are not proper for saints. The term can also be read, there must not even be a hint of this stuff among you. And alongside sexual sin, Paul lists impurity and greed. Now, scholars argue from the language that these things were happening in the church at Ephesus. And and he says, like, this has to stop. These things do not fit the Christian life. Have you ever had to wear clothes that don't fit? Shoes that are too tight, pants that won't stay up. It's a problem, right? You need clothes that fit. And these practices Paul is talking about, which are so normal to the world, are in total contradiction to the life Christ has given us. And he says, you just can't do it. You can't. You can't put on Christ and also do these other things. Remember, pure living water is supposed to flow out of us in streams of love and grace, flowing out of our hearts and out of our lives for the benefit of those around us in our communities at large. These things, the sexual sin, the greed, the impurity, they defile that water like a corpse in a stream. And we need to have a strong reaction to pollutants in that living water. In America... Research shows that more than 50% of our water is too polluted to drink, and of our tap water, 50% of the drinking water is contaminated with forever chemicals. But we're used to it, right? We lived in Hanford all those years with stinky egg water what you, and, and arsenic water. I, did you, didn't you love getting the mailers? We're slowly poisoning you with arsenic. You know, It's only slowly poisoning, right? Well, what are you going to do? I have to drink it. It's my tap water. 
And so we get used to it and we think, well, there's not really much you can do about it. We can filter it. We can do that. We can do the other thing. But in the back of our minds, we know I'm drinking someone's pharmaceuticals that they put down the drain, right? I'm drinking methamphetamine that seeped into the groundwater. I'm doing all these different things. We get used to it. But we can't accept that on a spiritual level. When we're talking about the Lord's living water in our hearts, that that is meant to be a wellspring of grace and truth and all of this work. And then when we contaminate it or pollute it with sin, we need to not have a tolerance for that. It's hard to know the true numbers, but based on some of the research I could find this week, somewhere between 54 and 64% of Christian men admit to viewing pornography on at least a monthly basis. That's a lot more than a hint, right? Paul said, don't even let a hint of these things be found among you. And that's a lot more than a hint. Now, that's just one issue, right, picked out of this list. If I'm honest, there's not a lot of research on greed. When's the last time you saw, like, how greedy are you on a scale of one to ten, right? And, and it's not that there's one sin that matters and the other ones don't, but let's pull it out. And this is, what, this, is what, this is what Paul is talking about. He says, hey, in this church, these are some things that you need to be set straight on, that you need to reconcile between God and your practice. And so in the American church, we, this is a big problem. And we need to recognize that the sexual ethic in our culture is totally rancid, totally devolved, totally depraved. And our goal as Christians in America isn't to be good when it comes to sexuality, it's to be godly, right? Not to be good when it comes to greed, it's to be godly. We're putting on Christ, we're being Christ-like. Verse four, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. So does Paul mean we can't joke around? Uh, The Puritans were famously not a very jokey bunch. People love the Puritans. I got, you know, you know, Puritans are great, but man, no giggling, no laughing, no joking. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, once said, one great reason why religion is judged to be melancholy is because it has no tendency to raise laughter, but rather to remove it. But that is no argument against the pleasantness of religion, no, but for the pleasure that raises laughter is never great. So all of you sinners who've been laughing tonight, you know, Jonathan Edward would run you out on a rail. But, so they weren't a laughy bunch. Is that what Paul's saying, that we really can't be jokey? No, he's talking about coarse, sexually vulgar speech. During those cult of Dionysus rituals, they would sing perverse and vulgar songs that I won't elaborate on any further. And Paul just says, listen, it's not suitable. It doesn't fit. If you're doing this stuff, you need to stop. Right? If you're, if you're participating in sexual immorality, you need to stop. If you're watching pornography, you need to stop. If you enjoy telling a filthy joke, you need to stop. He says it's not suitable, it's not proper, it doesn't work. We can expand obscene and foolish talking in this list here as speech that lacks a godly perspective on life. Again, it's not about having speech that is better than the cussing sailor next door. It's about godliness. It's about being godly, not good. Our words matter. We talk a lot throughout each day, but our words matter. Matthew 12 says that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Now, we shouldn't be afraid of that. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him in that way, that we're gonna get to heaven and he's gonna smack us around a few times first before giving us our inheritance, right? But our words actually matter. 
Instead of dirty jokes and curses and godless speech, we should give thanks, Paul says. That's the antidote to the vices of verse 4. Verbalized thankfulness helps to protect us from the negative and unsuitable speech that we're prone to. James talks about the power of the tongue and how difficult it is to tame the tongue. And so what's a way for us to tame the tongue? Be thankful. Give thanks. That's what helps us imitate God more and more. Verse 5, for no one recognizes this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, period. These sins are not just, well, like, make sure you don't do these things. Paul is explaining, like, listen, these sins are symptoms of idolatry. A few weeks ago in our Sunday morning studies in Isaiah, we heard all about idolatry in our hearts and how we need to identify it and deal with it and, 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 and recognize that it's not just the pagan bowing down to a statue on the other side of the earth. It, it, it also comes into my heart as well, and we need to reconcile it with the Lord and by His grace. On the one hand, it seems like Paul has become very severe, doesn't it? Especially after the excitement and the you know, just overflowing you know, enthusiasm of chapters one through three. But as one commentator points out, the things that Paul is telling them to put off and walk away from, on some level, it's a hard sell for Paul to tell these Ephesians, you need to stop doing a lot of the things that your culture and heritage finds acceptable and commendable. The things that make you a good Ephesian, you've got to stop doing those and recognize that you're not a good Ephesian anymore. You're a godly Christian called to be a part of the body of Christ, called into a cosmic unfolding work, called into a new kingdom. And so you've got to stop this. You've got to put it off. You've got to separate out from these things. And the reason why Paul's saying now, and so here's some specific things. The way you speak, the way you act, the way you use your body, the way you fill your mind and your heart. It's like you've got to not do these things. Why? Because those things invade the heart and change the trajectory of your life and they are an affront to an holy God who says, don't do it, stop it. He says, that's an abomination, that's an offense to me, that's something that I, I refuse to let you do and we say, we're gonna do it anyway. And we have to stop. This is a holy God we're talking about who's called us to be a part of his family, who's called us to be a part of his kingdom, who's sharing his divine nature with us, who says, you're gonna be my body and now you're gonna do what I want you to do because by the way, I know what's best for you. I know what's best for this world. I know what will transform neighborhoods and communities and states and nations, but you have to do what I want you to do because I know better. I'm the designer, I'm the master, I'm the creator. I'm the God who is the head and you are the body. And you must do what I ask you to do if you want to be full of living life. So is Paul saying, if I tell a dirty joke, I lose my spot in heaven? No. Remember, these people he's talking to, he says, hey, you've already had a down payment. You've been sealed for eternity. You've had a down payment. He's not telling them they're going to lose their spot. But he is pointing out that Christianity is completely, absolutely, fundamentally different in thought and attitude and behavior and culture than regular unsaved life. Our words and our behaviors reveal who we are and whose we are. You could look at a life and evaluate whether that person belongs to Christ or whether it belongs to Dionysus, right? The mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. From the heart comes sexual immoralities and evil thoughts and all these other things. From the heart flows God's living water. And so the question is, all right, what is the condition of my heart? What is the condition of this person's heart? 
because the mouth and the actions and the attitudes tell me something about the condition of the heart. In the cult of Dionysus, participants would go up a mountain, totally blitzed and intoxicated out of their minds in a weird ecstasy, like throwing their heads back as they played these weird horn things. And they'd be slashing themselves with flagellums. And as they went, they believed they were becoming godlike. They were becoming like Dionysus because he was the guide of, god of wine and fertility and insanity. I didn't know we needed a god of insanity. I thought we had that covered, but whatever. And so they said, I'm becoming free, liberated from the, the worldly constraints around me, and I'm becoming godlike. But a Christian was the one who's actually set free. Jesus Christ makes us free. And what happened? Jesus was the one scourged for us. We don't scourge ourselves. He walked the hill to Calvary, not to indulge himself or intoxicate himself. In fact, he refused the intoxicating wine. He went up that hill to die for us. And now we have the chance to put on his likeness and share in his divine nature. And now we believers take off our former way of life, which was corrupted and ruined by our selfish, sinful desires, and now we are renewed in the spirit of our minds, made righteous and pure as we imitate a holy God and share in the divine nature that he has given to us. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation if you fall into sin. Paul is talking about the habitual pattern of our hearts and lives. But at the same time, Recognize that falling into sin is a terrible, defiling thing. And a life given to sin is not a life that leads to the kingdom. It leads to destruction. It leads to decay. It leads to ruin. And so we must put off the old way. There's nothing good about it. There's no hope in it. It doesn't end in life. It ends in death. Instead of going the old ways, the world's ways, we are to walk with God in love, imitating the Lord as we go. One commentator boils it down for us by saying this, Christianity is an initial decision followed by lifestyle discipleship. And and so we're on our way to glory. The, The Lord has promised it and he is accomplishing it. It's his work that he began. He will complete it. We're headed to an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. And we choose to go God's way, participating with him, trusting that he is right and he is true and he does know what's better. And we throw off the defilement of the world's culture around us and we progress in our relationship with Jesus, not perfectly, but increasingly. And we grow and progress as we imitate God, not trying to be good people, but living as godly people. I'll close with these words from the Apostle John that sum these things up. He says in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure.